Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by the newest member of the Acton team, Director of Research, Dr. John Pinheiro, and Dylan Palman, Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a Research Fellow here at Acton. Today, we'll discuss the proper role of secrecy in a free society. But first, I want to go to college. Actually, no, I really don't. I'm very glad when I graduated from college and that was over. I wasn't the best of students. But we're going to college in order to discuss the current state of college as prompted by this move uh, from President Joe Biden in an executive order to want to relieve $10,000 of student loan debt for Americans who would qualify. Uh, the salary qualifiers, the income qualifiers for this are uh, individuals making up to 125000 and people finally jointly making up to $250,000. Uh, if you have Pell Grants, you can have up to $20,000 from that relieved. So I want to give a little bit of background here on the current status of student loan statistics, just so people have some background for this conversation. Uh, As of August 2022, borrowers in the United States owe collectively about $1.75 trillion in federal and private student loans. If you're wondering who is carrying that debt, at least in terms of their level of uh, education, bachelor's degree debt is about $29,000, graduate student loan debt about $71,000, law school debt $145,000, MBA student debt $66,000, medical school debt about $201,000, dental school debt, this one surprised me, $292,000, expensive to become a dentist. Uh, and veterinary school, 183000 So that's who is carrying the level of debt there. 45 million Americans have student loan debt. That's about one in seven Americans or 13.5%, according to an analysis of January 2022 census data. And 92% of those loans are owned by the Department of Education. So this is a move. There are a lot of questions around this, both the on the legal side of it, uh, on a a justice question, um, as well as a, I think, a moral question here. So first to you, John, what do you make of this move from the Biden administration? There's so many different angles you can you can look at this move from the Biden administration. So as, as an historian myself, I think back to the accusations against Franklin Roosevelt that his New Deal policies were calculated to build up a good electorate for the Democratic Party in the 1930s. And that's true, but they also did things for people and alleviated suffering and, of course, had lots of unintended consequences and maybe some intended ones uh, that, that, that I might find to be negative. So in President Biden's case, this was you know going back to the primaries when, when Bernie Sanders was offering uh, a huge amount of debt relief and then competing with Elizabeth Warren, who I, I think had a more uh, radical amount of debt relief. Uh, this is pretty small compared to both of those. But I think the the president is trying to fulfill a campaign pledge, and I, I think that's a big part of it in a time period when he's having difficulty. So that's that's the political angle. Justice, I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure how much 
in terms of justice, and I would say mercy, maybe another word to, to consider. I'm not sure how much that's, that's involved here. I think there, there is a much larger problem in terms of what students are paying for, what they expect out of a degree, the purpose of a college education. And then there's, as you said, the, the legality angle. Can the president even do this? Yeah, I had made a notes here ahead of this program, and I have five different reasons why I think this is a very bad idea. Um, I'm sure we'll get to all of them at some point through this conversation, but you alluded to one of them at the end there, which is it, it does nothing to address the bigger problem if I accept the arguments that the people in favor of this are making. The, the thing that I just can't get past is if this is as predatory a system as they're claiming that it is, and that is why it necessitates a move like this to relieve some of this debt. Let's assume the, the number one reason I have, which is I think it's illegal. Uh, set that aside. Let's say it actually happens. $10,000 for all the eligible people is uh, written off or more accurately transferred onto taxpayers at large. The very moment after that happens, somebody is going to go fill out an application for federal student loans. If the system really is that predatory, why are they allowing it to continue to exist exactly as it is? Which is one of the reasons why you know, I want to assume good faith and arguments that are made in favor of programs like this. I just I'm more skeptical of the arguments made of this one than I think I am of most. The intentions in the 1960s, starting with the Pell Grants before they transferred in the late 70s to be primarily these kinds of loans. I mean, it's another good example of these are good intentions to try to get young people who can't afford college but have the brains and the aptitude and the desire for it to get a college education, but to further encourage a, a broken system by loan forgiveness. I, I think that's, that's – you're absolutely right. I, that's one of the largest, larger problems here. Uh, so you forgive ten thousand, then what's it? What's it going to be next? And it's going to encourage more loans. But if if these are predatory and problematic to begin with, you're only encouraging more of the same. And, and one-time actions, we've seen, you know, it's the old Milton Friedman Friedman quote that there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. You give $10,000 away once in the same way that they announced that they were going to pause payments on federal student loans because of the coronavirus pandemic. And it's now coming up on two years later, and we're still doing it. We, we are, it's more than two years later. We are still doing it. So, um, yeah, I'm glad we covered a lot of what I wanted to bring up. Um, <clears throat> I guess I'll start with a, a contrarian point because I, I want to um, put this on the table um, contrarian from a conservative perspective, I would say. Um, it, justice and mercy were mentioned. Um, I've seen a lot of people say, well, this isn't fair uh, to people who paid off their loans. Um, I understand that perspective. Um, but as far as who has the prerogative to cancel a debt, it is the lender. Um, and that they can do that as a matter of mercy. Mercy fundamentally is not based on equality. Um, there's all kinds of parables in the New Testament about, um, you know, the, well, the prodigal son is a great example. Uh, the, one, the, the other son, who we sometimes forget about, complains to the father. You've, you've done all this for this son who ran off and, and uh, you know, was irresponsible. What about me? You know, this isn't fair. Um, but that said, uh, there are, I think, some very deep moral problems with this. Uh, going all the way back to 
uh, as John mentioned, the history of student loans. They started as need-based grants, uh, and then by the late 70s, 80s, transitioned to basically loans for everybody who wanted them. Um, And it correlates very strongly. I'm not going to claim causation, although I would believe it if somebody else could prove it. Um, But it correlates very strongly with incredible inflation in the price of higher education. Um, And there's a logic to this uh, that makes a lot of sense, that if suddenly anybody can go, the demand explodes. And when demand increases, the price goes up. I mean, that's that's just basic supply and demand. Um, And I even think there's a well-intended basis of it. There's this idea that, well, people with college degrees tend to make this amount every year and have this kind of middle-class lifestyle. Don't we want that for everybody, right? And so there's also uh, measurable grade inflation since the 1980s, evidence that students are just being pushed along through the system. Uh, You know, high school used to be a much higher bar for people to actually get their diploma. Um, People used to have other options, and that used to be okay. Instead, by the time I was a kid, it was better get your high school diploma or you're not going to amount to anything in life. And by the time I got to high school, it was better get that college degree or you're not going to amount to anything in life. By the time I was getting my bachelor's, I started to hear people say, well, you might want to think about a master's. And I you know, started to worry that I was in the middle of some kind of Ponzi scheme. Um, and uh, so you have these loans contributing to uh, the inflation of prices because you have this guaranteed uh, money, revenue, coming into colleges, which they're spending on all sorts of things, not all of which seem directly tied to improving the quality of education uh, or accommodating these students. Sometimes it's, you know, massive uh, sports centers and whatever. Although a lot of that is actually targeted uh, donors and things like that. So I don't want to rag on that too much. But there's just random nonsense happening. There's administrative bloat like crazy, very measurable again. Um, And so you have all these things putting pressure on the price of higher ed. Um, And then... Student loans are one of the few kinds of debt in this country which cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. Um, So there's two fundamental problems here. One, we're giving loans to anybody. We're not doing any kind of screening of what are you going to study? What's your plan? Um, How are you going to pay off this debt, which any bank would do for any other kind of loan? Um, And then uh, we don't let anybody get out of it. So the people who it turns out they can't pay it off, uh, the people most vulnerable, are not given mercy as they would with almost any other debt, um, which to me makes it, uh, frankly, borderline usurious. Um, that This is an example of usury. If you are exploiting the poor through a, a debt, that is what usury is. Um, and so I think we have, we have two fundamental problems, and this is just kind of a Band-Aid, right? You, know, to, you can argue about, you know, should we have done it? Certainly we should talk about the legal basis of it, uh, which I agree is very questionable, Uh, this kind of crisis uh, basis. Um, But there's also this bigger moral problem that we have uh, really built up this kind of predatory. I don't know if predatory feels too malicious, uh, but it's it's at least a very unhealthy uh, and harmful system, um, despite the fact that college degrees are still a good thing. I do want to say that for the record. Uh, They generally are, unless you're getting a degree in underwater basket weaving or something like that. Um, but we have a system that really does need reform, and it's unfortunate that we have this kind of ad hoc executive order, uh, band-aid, politicized move instead of some real reform to look at these bigger issues. You make a good point there about how the the whole problem kind of feeds off of itself, that as you have had this transference of who the lenders are for this, if the pri- if you're a private lender, 
you're going to want to look probably a little more closely than the Department of Education is currently looking at, you know, what is the likelihood that this loan is going to be paid back? Um, so we, we know general statistics here. So this is from a, a piece that, um, for other reasons, I will also put in the show notes from uh, David French at The Dispatch. Uh, in July, the unemployment rate for recent college graduates was a paltry 2.9%. The total lifetime wage premium for a college education is about $900,000 for men and $630,000 for women, an amount that's many multiples of the average college debt. Uh, so if you had this transference from private lenders largely to the government being the lender or at least at the end of the day, the guarantor of it, you have colleges who view it basically as a blank check that they can charge whatever they want because the government, their priority is not the repayment part of it. Their priority is the getting more people into college because that is the agenda associated with it. Um the whole thing begins to feed off itself. So that's where you get people who I remember reading a story a number of years ago about this being a problem and the person that they were profiling the story and just from a journalistic perspective, like pick a better character to profile. The person had a master's in puppetry. Like you, it, you get a lot of these. Degrees. So there is one. There is one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure you don't need one to work on Sesame Street. So you do get this creation of a lot of these degrees that don't have as much value unless what you're going to do with it is you're going to go through you know, all three rounds of higher education, get your undergraduate, get your master's, get your Ph.D., and then go back into the education system and start teaching the same thing that you learn. So it's a system that feeds off itself in that aspect as well. And it does nothing to address the cultural point, which is one of the things as you know, someone with younger kids bothers me the most. You, you talked about, the Dylan, the over-credentialization problem, that you keep getting this encouragement as you go down this line to get one level higher and get one level higher. And for some people, that may make total sense. But it doesn't even necessarily make sense for everyone just to get a bachelor's degree. That There are plenty of things that you can do. Uh, that will make you gainfully employed. The trades, um, a lot of people who you know are entrepreneurs who didn't necess- have an entrepreneurial mindset who didn't need a college degree in order to do the kind of things they were interested in. But almost from kindergarten, there is this cultural insistence now that you have to go to college, you have to go to college, you have to go to college. Um, it becomes part of that Brookings success sequence thing too where you, know, you get the basically the most – there is this graduate from high school, but it's it's become now, I think, you know, go to college and graduate from college. And I've always wondered about the selection bias problem and all of that. If it's a, you know, the, the people who the success sequence is a model, um, if you do those things, you will, you know, at least avoid poverty, but, you know, be better off. Or is that the kind of people who are willing to do those things are the kind of people less likely to end up in poverty? I've always wondered about that part of it. But this does nothing whatsoever to address this cultural problem that I think is, you know, it at least should be moderated from the level that it's at right now. One of the first things I used to tell my students at Aquinas College when I taught there, I would, I would give them the talk and the talk would be something like, like this. I would talk about uh, relatives in my family who were auto mechanics and made a larger salary than I did as a professor. I would tell them what I paid my plumber just the previous weekend to do a couple hours of work. And I would say, look, it's great. I mean, if, if everybody can read Homer 
and Dante and have a humane uh, education, that, that would be wonderful. But hardly any of you are here for that because I would, I would ask them why they're here. And we would go through this teleological exercise of why are you here? And almost always they would say either to get a degree, so it's about the degree and, and not the education, and the, the words really matter there, how they're, how they're conceiving of that. It would be about the degree, and that's really what they're, they're paying for. And because they're paying for it, they think of themselves as a customer, the administration thinks of them as customers, and they all agree that they're, they're customers. And in a way they are, I mean, they're, they're paying, but if, if we were to dial back the clock about 100 years and you have 5 to 10% of American young people going to college, and now we have such a larger percentage, not, not everybody's suited to at least a liberal arts education. Not everybody's going to benefit from it. And those who are, maybe it's still not the best investment because they can read on their own. I mean, you think, of a, you think of an organization like the Intercollegiate Studies Institute with the pamphlets I used to give of theirs to students talking about getting your, getting your best education after college. So you're going to sit through what you're paying for as your, your money goes to fund uh, diversity centers and experiences. And as uh, I think it was uh, Ann Rathbone Bradley, the, the Acton Affiliate Scholar, fairly recently in Religion and Liberty in 2019, talking about... Uh, uh, all the fantastic things that can entertain you at a college. So, so at Aquinas College, we had the first-year experience. I kind of like – I prefer the, the word education to experience. <laughs> what, what's an experience and what am I paying for? You want to spend that kind of money, you could have a week-long experience at Disney World, and that's going to run you $10,000. But nobody's going to refund it for you. You get to the hypothetical exercise in Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education, where he starts with, okay, I'm going to tell you you're going to be stranded on a desert island, and I'm going to offer you one of two things, a survival training course education without the certificate of completion or the certificate without the training. Which do you take? Of course, you take the training. Second part, I'm going to offer you a Harvard education without the diploma or a Harvard diploma without the education, which do you take? And the point being, for a lot of people, you'd pause for a second to think about that because what's important, what has become important, is the credential for the signaling mechanism that it serves. And now, even if you had certainly, you know, plenty of examples of people who did not finish their education at Harvard have gone on to be successful. But I think the fact that that hypothetical causes a lot of people to pause and wonder which is actually more valuable to them is an indication of one of the problems in, in the system. And the six-year graduation rate is under 50%. It used to be four, of course, but now six years. Yeah, so there's a, there is a big problem with a lot of the debt is held by people who didn't get the degree. Um, Kaplan's example is interesting in that I actually think it's, it's kind of a bad example. The Ivy League schools um, probably are worth it if you can get in. A lot of people, in fact, don't even bother to apply because they don't think they can get in. Um, but a lot of those people like Princeton, I know, has excellent scholarships. You know, they, they have this gigantic endowment. Um, a lot of people get through there with very little debt. Um, so not only is it worth it in terms of the credentialing and the signal mechanism, um, but also a lot of these people come off financially better off. Uh, the big problem is the gigantic middle, right? No one cares if you went to Central Mich Michigan University versus Western Michigan University, right? And I both find schools. I'm not trying to, like, knock on them or anything. But what we have is, again, a supply and demand problem. If you increase the supply of people with degrees, 
you will decrease the demand for it in the workplace. It will just mean less. Um, you apply somewhere and someone says, you know, oh, you got a degree. Well, so does the other 10 applicants. You know, it, it doesn't set you apart as much. Now, again, it again statistically does still seem to be worth it um, for most degrees or a lot of degrees. Uh, so I don't want to go too far in that direction. Um, but there is a real problem there on that side of it. The point you made, Dylan, it reminded me of when I was in college and I had that supply and demand thing really click for me for the first time. So I knew a lot of people who were uh, education majors in one form or another who were talking about the salaries that they were looking like they were going to earn when they were going to get out, which did get into a separate conversation about how accurate the perception people have of what teachers make is versus the reality, but set that aside. And I remember a lot of them complaining. So Alex Rodriguez had just left the Seattle Mariners and signed this $252 million contract with the Texas Rangers. And you get this like semi-moralist point about how important teachers are and how little they're going to make compared to Alex Rodriguez, who just hits baseballs for a living. And how important is that? It was like, well, you know, at any given time, there's only a few hundred people who are really qualified to play Major League Baseball, right? I mean, we even have this term for people who, you know, are too good for the the top level of the minors, but not really good enough to cut it in the big leagues, uh, quad A players, four A players instead of triple A. And I think at, at any time with the amount of education degrees, like the number of people I knew at my small liberal arts college that were getting education degrees – how many people were qualified, whether or not they would be great teachers, but at least credentialized and qualified to teach was enormous. So of course, the salary is going to be lower for that. I mean, that was one of the first times that that clicked for me. And another thing that I remember noticing is, look, you know, people can always end up proving you wrong. I love stories where people end up proving you wrong. I was in classes with some of those people who were going to be teachers. And again, I have a degree in music, so we're not even talking all that high stakes. I just could never envision them up in front of a classroom. And you compare this to uh, – so I went to this little liberal arts school, Millican University in Decatur, Illinois, very well renowned for its musical theater program. Getting through that is very difficult at the highest level for a, a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in theater there. You have to go through after your first year hurdles, which is basically like final exams for performance, and then barriers. And if you don't do well in your hurdles, they will tell you, we're not 100% sure you're going to cut it here. So you know you really need to prove up in year two. Otherwise, we're not going to let you finish. And if they don't think that you're going to be, in their opinion, successful – they won't let you finish with a BFA degree. They are protective of the quality of that degree, where so many other degrees, as I look at it, I don't think the universities are very protective of the quality of it and how many they dispense to people who might not be the best recipients of it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point. I think uh, the thing I, I wanted to say uh, ties into this pretty well is that um, degrees just don't work the way people think. Um, so they do matter. They do correlate with, uh, you know, higher income in the long term. Um, but or actually, maybe the better way to put it is careers don't work the way people think. There was a great article maybe a decade ago. Um, I, I'll dig it up uh, for the show notes. Um, but it was it was about uh, the difference between uh, romance and relationships and career and how people generally have completely reversed expectations compared to the reality. So we know what makes a good relationship. Communicate, forgive, Apologize. If you can find someone that you can do that with, you can have a healthy, long-lasting, 
relationship. Um, when it comes to career, and so what people usually think is, oh, I got to find the right one. It's got to be serendipitous. It's got to be this kind of rom com, whatever sort. Of, no, the no, idea no. of the Com- one. Yeah, that communicate, one. forgive, apologize. You'll be fine. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to career, it's very much about being in the right place at the right time. And who do you know? And you know, things just kind of falling in line. And so I, when I talk to younger people now, thinking about college, thinking about career. I asked them things like, well, you know, A, yes, a degree seems to matter. So find that topic that of study that really gets you excited, uh, that you know I'm going to be able to get through this and get this degree. But also look for networks, right? Look for, you know, who am I, who are you getting plugged in with? Um, because that's a lot of where the job comes from. It's not just, oh, I got this degree and now somebody's going to hand me a job. Because you might get a degree in a field where it's oversaturated, like teaching, for example. Um, And you might have to start thinking creatively about what else can I do with this degree and who do I know? Um, And that's where it suddenly becomes useful. Um, But we don't really prep people for that either in colleges. It's very much based on this formula, which does not actually, actually correspond to reality. The tenor of the conversation to me, unless I'm misunderstanding it, seems to be primarily utilitarian and colleges are for to get you into a career, and so there's this cost-benefit analysis that takes place. And it should take place because somebody, you the student or somebody else, is going to, going to pay for it. But if we, you know, we back up a little bit and we ask a question like, is this college education or degree or credential or career or lack of a college education with the burden of debt, meaning lack of a degree with the burden of debt, is that going to, to make you happy? Are you doing what you're designed to do by God, which is to pursue the truth and seek and know it, and you're, you're just designed to do that and to go after it? Is that what you're doing in college? Or are you trying to jump through all the hurdles so that you can get the credential, so that you can get that, find out that serendipitous moment where you get the amazing career, and one day you were in debt for $60,000 for your degree, and the next year you landed a job and you're making $170,000 a year, and it's just wonderful, and it's everything you ever dreamed of. Right. Now, I think I think that's a really good critique as well, is that we have lost, largely lost the idea of just education as personal formation. Right. And and we've lost the the connection between those things that there is a certain success in life. It might not be financial success, but it might be in terms of personal happiness and flourishing that comes from being a well-rounded individual. And that's something that uh, at least, uh, you know, humane education, liberal arts education uh, used to promise and used to really aim at cultivating in a way that, you know, more and more these things are being sidelined for, you know, the the STEM fields and just anything that people believe is going to advance someone materially, you know, in terms of career um, or even more, you know, uh, things that matter but that aren't everything, whether it's, you know, oh, you want to build a nice future for your future family and all that sort of thing. Those are good things. Um, it's not wrong to care about those, but it is good to ask that question of like, why are you here, right? If you're just here for the degree, you're just here because you want a good job, there's a lot of good jobs out there that don't need a degree. Um, a university, a college is a place to get an education. And there's a lot of jobs out there that uh, right now, if you go and you look at the job postings from them, shouldn't require a degree. 
but it has become a convention for a lot of employers to put a bachelor's degree requirement or at least a strong recommendation. You know, a part of this, again, is on, you know, it's, it's on the supply and the demand side, right? So you could have a cultural change amongst employers where we're not always looking for somebody with a college degree as being a requirement for uh, applying for that kind of a position, or at least the openness um, to entertaining candidates for that job who don't have a bachelor's degree, but have either relevant experience, they, you know, conduct good interviews with them, try to find out who they are as people, as they would exist in the workplace, and find the people that you want to give those chances to. Uh, The there's a third point, too, about attending college I think we should probably make because I thought, John, the point you raised about like what is the is this utilitarian goal versus this educational formation goal, this personal human formation goal that exists there. I think we should also acknowledge that given the way that college exists now, there's at least one other category. And I, to quote Milton Friedman again, uh, who described it as a pleasant interlude between high school and real life. There are people who are there for the cultural experience of college. They will emerge from it, ideally, with the degree that exists for that credentialing purpose. But they're there for college football. They are there for parties. They are there for things unrelated to either personal formation or the utilitarian goal. The utilitarian goal is just kind of a nice thing that comes along with the personal experience, the fun that they are going to have. I think that is a reality of not all schools, uh, but certainly when you get these lists of what are the biggest party schools in the country, uh, the fact that a list like that exists points to that as a, a culture that exists out there that we should be cognizant of. One other point on the the education formation that kind of learning doesn't have to happen at a university. You know, there are organizations out there, I don't know, like the Acton Institute, that do this kind of education, this kind of formation. Um, uh, the prices we charge are a lot lower than a college education. And yes, you're not going to have that credential, the utility of that diploma at the end of it. But if you're seeking knowledge and the ability to learn that kind of moral and human educational formation, then there are other places that can provide that, that don't necessitate you having gone to college. There was a good book out maybe 10 years ago now. I want to say the author's name was Flynn, and it was called Blue Collar Intellectuals. And what Blue Collar Intellectuals was about, was about was the 1950s and the time period of these book clubs and a lot of, well, blue collar intellectuals without a college education. And yet what would they do? They would be getting a book a week or a book a month like the Book a Month Club. And they would very much be interested in the big kind of things you might be paying for at, at a university. Big questions, deep questions, what, what we were calling humane learning earlier. And then, of course, nowadays, sure, it would be something like the the Acton Institute or a conference. But what you don't have, as this book pointed out, is a popularity of book clubs like that any longer. I want to take a look at this from two more angles before we move on. We're going along on this topic, but I think it merits it. Uh, The next one I want to address is having reviewed the legal case for doing this. Do we think that it has any merit at all? So to briefly summarize what it is, it uses the 9-11 Heroes Act, which was passed in the wake of 9-11, 
which does grant the Secretary of Education um, some pretty broad latitude in order to make accommodations largely targeted at people who are going to be deployed to Fallujah, but nonetheless does grant that kind of broad latitude, uses that while also claiming that the emergency precipitating this action is the COVID-19 pandemic. What do we make of this? Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical. That I mean, it's – on the one hand, I guess you could say, yeah, legally, technically all that's there. But it's it's a stretch uh, at the very least um, in part because we, we currently have a labor market where, you know, employers want to hire. Um, so it's not like there are no jobs for people to get back on their feet. Um, and again, no employment rate for recent college graduates – 2.9%. Right. Yeah. Um, and we also have, you know, as you mentioned, a pause uh, for two years now in the payment of uh, student loans. In fact, that was extended with this executive order to the end of December, I believe. Um, and another thing uh, is worth pointing out, though it's not the same as having debt canceled. There is a substantial difference. But um, a lot of people are on income-based repayment. And if your income is low enough, your monthly payment is zero. Um, so some people have had their payments paused for a very long time and not really paused. They've been technically making zero dollar payments every month. Um, but it's just not the idea that this is a crisis that need to be a, a addressed is on one hand, very understandable for all the reasons we already mentioned. I do think the system uh, has gotten even not only unhealthy, but exploitative uh, to some degree uh, that you have. 17-year-olds that just are kind of accepting what adults are telling them. This is what you need to do in life, saying, yeah, okay, I'll sign on the bottom line. I'll, you know, um, take out the loans and I'll go to the school and all that. And then three, four years later, they have some regret about that when they get the bill. I get that. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, if the HEROES Act is about, you know, soldiers, uh, we got a pretty broken uh, veteran affairs system in this country. Why is that not deemed a crisis? You know, there's there's all sorts of other issues. I mean, I don't want to be too whataboutist about this. Um, but we have something. It's actually not not strictly um, that your tax dollars are now going to this loan forgiveness because we're probably already spending at a deficit this year anyway. What this means is that our children's future tax dollars uh, through debt uh, is going to pay off some people's uh, college loans or some portion of some people's college loans today. One of the things where I think there are better uses, I also unfortunately think there's a lot of worse things we could do with our, with our deficit spending. Um, so I, I'm a little more kind of on the fence about it. I don't blame anyone for claiming uh, this loan forgiveness if they qualify. I, you know, I, I get it. Somebody's in that situation. Why wouldn't you, right? Um, but if we want to take a step back and we ask about the legal basis and the policy, uh, the legal basis is for something that that desperately needs reform um, and it's not being used for that at all. I hope that the bar, for considering this, Dylan, <laughs> um, for further destroying the market in higher education and, and running the prices up as they've gone up about 1,400% since the late 70s, uh, for college education, I hope it's not. Well, it could be worse. Sure. Okay. They, sure. The, imagine Point ten. Taken. It, <laughs> you sit here and you think, I can think of ten worse things the U.S. government could spend on or or, or do. I, so there's the case when something's legal and when it's ethical. Of of course, I I think uh, maybe legal 
Is it ethical in the sense that this is a crisis tantamount to what the law intends? No. There is a crisis, but it's a crisis from the student loan system itself. And it's been snowballing for 20 years, 30 years. And what happens when you do this? You make it larger. And so imagine if you come to me and you want to pay off my debt. So Eric says, John, I, I like you so much. I've only known you for a month, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pay off whatever debt you have. Be like, Eric's my new best friend. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton knew this, right? You, you, the government pays off the state's debts. The state's going to like the new U.S. government. Jefferson knew that too, so he couldn't stand the, couldn't stand the plan for obvious reasons. So put aside the, the, the bribery and making friends aspect. Sure, I'm, I'm 22. I'm looking at a debt that's, let, let's say it's 40000 Now it's going to be 30000 that's better, but it's still something I can't really pay off in any reasonable amount of time at this point with the job I've gotten, whether I've gotten a, a, a degree or not. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth um, pointing out that I think a lot of people my generation uh, who very much have, have taken on debts and been alarmed at how large they've gotten, I'm sure it's even worse for Gen Z, um, it takes a good decade or two uh, to really get out of that and to to settle into that career that's going to, uh, I don't know, I guess, I guess like there's a story, there's a narrative that uh, was not told, uh, which really should have been, which was not simply go to college, get a degree, and you'll be fine. It was go to college, get a degree, and now here's step one for building that career. And then here's step two, and here's step three. There's a lot of people right now who might qualify for this who 10 years from now would not. Um, and it does make me wonder, well, you know, is this targeted relief actually hitting the people who need it most? That's, again, where I go back to our issues with bankruptcy law, right? That would be a way to target the people who literally cannot pay off their debts um, and give them some relief. Um, and instead, we're doing it income-based, which is better than than just giving it to everybody, of course. Um, but there's, I mean, there's just certain jobs. If you have a, a ton of debt because you became a doctor, well, year one, suddenly you don't you don't qualify for any of this relief, even though your debt is, you know, four times what someone else's is. Um, there's just a lot of things to consider. Cost of living, depending on where you live, you're going to make a lot more. And so you're going to qualify or not qualify for that. There's just, there's all kinds of issues with the calculations here um, that, you know, I I don't know if I'd go so far um, to condemn the framing on moral grounds, but I, yeah, it is at least ethically questionable. It's at least prudently questionable that, at the very least. So, if I, I print the money, but I also give the debt. So you were right earlier, Dylan, that it's if, if, if I give the debt, I can forgive the debt. Sure. Uh, but this, this is a debt then that – so I'm getting my – let's say I'm getting my debt forgiven and I'm a, I'm a 25-year-old. What I'm really saying is this investment was so important, I'm going to have my children and grandchildren pay for it. Right. That's, yeah. I mean that's, that's really yeah. what you're saying. Is it that important? So when you're, when you're building wealth by getting a mortgage on a home – hopefully a 15-year, but maybe a 30-year for most people, you, you have something at the end of it. Is, does the cost-benefit analysis here work for the amount of debt you've gotten, or could you have done something better with your time? You know, you think of lost, lost wages, et cetera, over those, those years. There's a lot of considerations, and I think you're right, Dylan, in that a 17- or 18-year-old is not going to think of that. 
So somebody else needs to think about it and talk to them about it. I want to build off that, but a quick point about the bankruptcy thing that I wanted to make earlier, which is you know, how do we get into this position where student loan debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy? I believe it was in the late 1980s when this happened. Uh, but the concern was that somebody was going to do something like, you know, again, as I was giving those statistics earlier about who holds debt. So you know, someone who's a lawyer, right? Come out of law school, your average debt is $145,000. In most cases, with a law degree, your earning potential because of that is going to be sufficient that you can pay off those student loan debts. In fact, there's another cultural problem that you could talk about specific to the legal profession, the problem of uh, the golden handcuffs that you'll get from big law firms, that you'll come out of law school, you have all of this debt, and you get this offer for a salary like you know, $150,000 a year, well in excess of what you're expecting a 22, 23-year-old, well, it would be probably 25 at that point, to be making. Uh, and you're a glorified document pusher and you get – I've known a lot of lawyers who were very unhappy in this situation where on one hand, they don't really like the legal work that they're doing, but it's providing them with enough money to be able to pay these loans off. That's another unhealthy cultural problem. But the concern in Congress was that you'd have a lawyer come out. So now you know you just finished up law school, so you're 25 years old. You file bankruptcy immediately to discharge all of that debt. And, you know, you're 25, seven years to get past the horizon of bankruptcy. And then by the time that they're really serious about buying a house, settling down, having kids, they're past that horizon point. Um, whether or not this was actually something that was really happening, I have not been able to find much substantiation for. I, I tried to look into this. Uh, it, it strikes me that maybe one of those kind of panic things that you know, somebody theorized that this is something that could happen and Congress acted irrespective of whether or not it was actually happening. But I think there's another interesting point here about questions of age of majority and age of adulthood here. Um, so it's about $65,000 a year to get a degree uh, from the University of Chicago. Right? So assume four years. So you're a 17-year-old. You can take out 260-some thousand dollars in debt to get a degree from the University of Chicago. Can you take out – all right, all right, fine. Can I take out a $250,000 mortgage? Oh, no. No, you can't do that. Uh, why? I, I, I understand on one level the surface reasons the concerns about paying it back. But don't the same concerns about paying it back exist here – from the educational perspective. Uh, now, of course, you always get into these weird things about where you're drawing lines in age of majority stuff. You know, the idea that you are uh, completely unable to handle a sip of alcohol at 20 years and 364 days old and then click midnight and now you can handle it. It always there's going to be some absurdity when you're drawing a specific line like that. But the idea that you know, home ownership or something like that is completely off the table to someone who's 17 years old, but taking on $260,000 a year in student loan debt is something that is not only offered, but frankly encouraged, does seem a little strange to me. I was thinking of the 17-year-old who was flying uh, airplanes during the Battle of Midway and sinking Carriers in the Pacific, mm -hmm. and I was thinking of uh, twenty-seven-year-olds still on their parents' health care. Yeah. So I was just thinking of these these ages and what at a particular age one is capable of in a particular time period is very different than what yeah. one might be capable of of now. It, 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 this is 
truly a cultural problem. I mean, this is one yeah, of the things about right. cultural problems that are so vexing, right? And this is one of the problems we've talked about on this program and in other act and programming before. But the issues that we have with some of our national conservative friends who thinks that public policy is the solution to some of these big cultural problems. And I think it can improve some things on the margins. But the idea that you're going to, I think, as I've, I've said numerous times about when we've discussed horrible uh, mass shootings, public policy can't fix broken souls, right? I think this is a cousin um, of that kind of a problem, that you fixing a cultural problem is a cultural fix. And I don't think public policy solves it, at least not in any kind of a direct way. Well, if anything, it's, you know, encouraging everyone to go to college, especially those who are going for the experience. Um, you're, in, you're extending adolescence you're, through policy. The pleasant you are, you are, you are encouraging people to wait to actually be functional adults. That's not to say everyone who goes to college is such a person, but... There's definitely an aspect of that. Um, and frankly, if you just want to go party, like you can move to East Lansing. You can show up at those parties. I, I, I went to some of those parties uh, back in the day. Uh, no one asked me for my Michigan State, uh, which I did not go to Michigan State. Nobody asked me for my Michigan State student ID to get into the party, right? Right. If, if you just want that experience, it is it is technically free. <laughs> you just got to <laughs> live there, be around, you know, wear a costume on Halloween. You can you can get in anywhere, right? Um, not encouraging people to do that, but um, that aspect of it, I think, uh, can be very harmful. Um, and it's it's definitely, to me, one of the wrong reasons to go to college. So one other angle I want to talk about this from briefly is, uh, I'll, I'll read a, a comment here from a progressive pastor. Conservative Christians are fully enraged at student loan forgiveness, missing the irony that their entire professed religion is based on the idea of a canceled debt. Way to lose the plot, kids. Now, look, this is a that's a Twitter hit. OK, so it's phrased in a way that is provocative for the purpose of getting the clicks and the engagement. Uh, but I want to ask here, as I draw this from this piece I mentioned earlier from David French, that will put in the show notes uh, entitled, Is There a Christian Case for Biden's Debt Relief? Is there? A Christian could certainly make the case for for debt relief. Uh, we could so we could go to uh, Leviticus. I mean, if I was the kind of person to to not read the Old Testament through, uh, as a theologian friend of mine says, through Jesus goggles, I could do that, and I could say, look, here's what we're supposed to do every seven years. Let's just let's just do it. Everybody forgives forgives debts. Uh, I don't think that applies in this case. Uh, but when we're we're talking about uh, debt, generally. Yeah, theoretically, that's fine. But what are they going into debt for? What, what exactly, what kind of education has been paid for? Is it a, is it a damaging relativism? What, what's being paid for in, in the university? A, a truncated version of the faith and reason synthesis? So in other words, or do, we, do we really want to subsidize the state in enforcing what really is a, is a secular non-religion in, in schools? I, I just think so. You know, on those grounds, I would say, no, that's not something I want to subsidize. Although you can use these, of course, at, uh, at private schools as well, loans. On the steel manning 
part of, uh, of all of this from David's piece. I'll just read this paragraph. First, let me say that I'm not persuaded that scriptures like Romans 13, 7, pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect uh, to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor, or Ecclesiastes 5, 5, it is better that you should not vow uh, than you should vow and not pay, are all that relevant. They're admonitions not to default. They're not commandments to refuse forgiveness. Yeah, so I mean that side of it, as I mentioned before, I think is is fine in terms of yes, it is the prerogative of the lender to grant mercy or not. Um, so sure, but as we've already mentioned, there are just so many reasons why our our you know student aid, student finance, higher ed situation is dysfunctional. Um, that okay, yeah, if somebody really needs relief, maybe. Um, this is better than nothing, but I think there's a lot of better things we could be doing. Um, so I, I look at it as a matter of prudence. In that case, I'm not going to call someone unchristian for supporting it. Um, I think that kind of rhetoric, uh, is unhelpful. Um, I mean, you could easily come back at the person and say, okay, so, you know, are we deifying the government then? <laughs> right. Cause that's the metaphor of God forgiving us. Um, well, no. Uh, but I do think that there there are other sides to it. Let's let's look at this um, more in a in a de facto sense of it's happening. Um, so what's a Christian responsibility? Let's say that you are someone who gets some of your debt forgiven. Well, uh, in the Orthodox Church, the gospel reading this Sunday was about the man who had a giant debt forgiven, and then he does not go and forgive the debt of a fellow servant, uh, which was not nothing, but it was comparably nothing. Um, the lesson there is be a forgiving person. Um, so let's say you benefit from this. Well, look around you. There are people who are not going to benefit from this who still need a lot of help. What can you do? Um, is this going to change how you live your life at all? Is this something that you're going to, your takeaway, is your takeaway going to be who you vote for or is it going to be how you love your neighbor? Um, now, not to say those things are mutually exclusive, but I, I hope it is much more the latter uh, than the former. This is the problem of how we have collectivized the student debt problem to me is that in these examples, you know, if I have uh, lent you, Dylan, a whole lot of money and I choose to forgive that debt, it's my money, my Mm -hmm. individual money. What we're talking about now is the – because there is – this is also part of – this is where the marketing guy in me comes out. There's some language problems in the whole way we're talking about this, that we are not canceling this debt. We are transferring it. The money has already been lent. The uh, service has already been provided. The benefit of that education, that diploma, has already been provided to the individual who went to school and completed the classes there. We're taking it and we're transferring it to people who had no real role in this, which is a different thing that you're asking other people. It's like, you know, I'm asking, I'm going to forgive the the debt that I have, but by taking money from John in order to make myself more whole. This is a different conversation and is one of the reasons why it would have been, I think, a lot better. And not to say that, you know, we have no problems in higher education if we hadn't have moved 93% of the debt for student loans to the federal government. But I think if it were in the hands of private lenders, I think we would have fewer problems because the calculations there at least would be different. I would agree with uh, Dylan that it, it's neither unchristian to support something like this or, or to oppose it. 
I would say that. I mean, I, I would go that far. In terms of prudence, though, it's hard for the virtue of prudence to work in a situation like this, right? The, the cycle of loan, debt, and then treating, treating debt forgiveness as if it's uh, the difference between emergency aid, which is necessary, or the kind that people of goodwill out of prudence are going to agree or disagree, you know, they're going to disagree on. Like, I think this is what's going to help. Well, I think this is what's going to help. Well, here are my principles behind that. Well, here, here are mine. And prudentially, they, they disagree, but they both want the same thing. They want to relieve the burden on these young people. But is, is loan forgiveness going to do that, or is it going to perpetuate the cycle and make it worse in the long run? Then we're talking about this a few years from now. Right. And I think, I think one of the key points is this is foregone government revenue, right? So that means that if you're not compensating, which as far as I know, this executive action does not somehow raise revenue to make up for it, then you're just kicking the can down the road <clears throat> and passing the bill on to our children. Yeah, the, John gets at what I think is my, um, and to come back to one of my hobby horses on the show, is the big picture problem with, for me, with the legal case for all of this is because those kinds of prudential concerns and coming up with solutions or reaching accommodations on problems that exist is the job that Congress is supposed to do. That's the design of our system. That is the purpose of our politics and the design of the federal government, that Congress is the body that is supposed to find ways to come to accommodations on these things that we agree are problems, but that we differ on either the nature of the problem or certainly on the solutions to the problem. And this continual problem we have now is that it is all loaded, offloaded from the body that's supposed to handle it and given to one particular individual. And this is a problem for like, a lot of reasons, but one of them too is everything that is done through an executive order by the president of the United States can be immediately undone by the next president of the United States. And you don't actually get solutions. You get this very herky-jerky, uncertain system where people do not reliably know what it's going to look like in a couple of years. So you're getting a signal here right now, $10,000 is being forgiven. Well, might that happen again? We don't know. Could that be revoked if it does pass legal muster somehow? Could it be revoked in an executive order by the next president? That would be an unpopular political thing to do on some aspect, but it could certainly happen. You don't reach any kind of real meaningful certainty, and we certainly don't reach accommodations in this where we do the messy work of trying to figure out how to best address these problems. Um, it's just one person acting, and I don't think we're particularly better for that approach to it. So let's table our second topic since we've gone long on this one, but I think it was, uh, I think it was worth it, so we will call it a wrap here. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to John. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.
Today, we'll discuss... Blah.